Welcome to Q&A Selling Online with answers to questions about creating an online empire, promoting products, or building a brand. Your host, private label and e-commerce entrepreneur, Quinn Amorm. Welcome to the show, my friends. Today, we have a special guest who is the author of Grow Like a Lobster. He has a BA in political science from Yale and an MBA in marketing finance from Kellogg School of Management of Northern University. Over 15 years, he transformed a small family business into a global market market leader in the coffee industry with customers in over 70 countries. In the process, sales grew more than 25 times and his earnings over 275 times. He since sold the business, moved to Italy, Florence, where he is right now, and he lives with his wife and three daughters. We have with us Josh Dick. How's it going, Josh? It is going great, Quinn. Thanks so much for having me on. Josh, it's a pleasure having you here. You're in Italy right now. How are things over there? Well, as you know, the world right now is dealing with a pretty difficult time with the coronavirus, and we here in Italy are on the front lines, I would say. Uh, fortunate for, fortunately for me, where we live in Florence is not in what they call the red zone, the heart of the real concentration where some horrible things are happening, but um, still tough being inside and being restricted in your movement. Um, but it's still Italy, it's still beautiful, and we're enjoying it <laughs> as best we can. All right, so is there a, in certain places have a mandatory lockdown? How does that well, work for groceries and stuff? Yeah, the whole country at this point is pretty much locked down in terms of movement. Um, you're allowed to leave your house for grocery shopping, for medical reasons, to go to the pharmacy. Um, there are, you know, I've been out for runs, jogging around town, and it's empty. Uh, there are police stationed at different places. I've not been approached, but I understand many people have been um, given summons or told to get home or asked what they're doing, and they're just trying to slow this thing down and you know, um, get it under control. Yeah. And it seems like right now there is no control. It doesn't matter if it's Italy, Spain, or North America, this thing is growing at a crazy rate. It really is. It really is. It's uh, very scary. Yeah. Just a couple of weeks ago, there was, I mean, I'm by weeks, I mean about a month ago, not 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 everybody was worried. There was even a lot of comments that this may not be a real thing, but now everybody knows it's real and hopefully everybody's taking it serious, right? Absolutely. And as we talked earlier, you know, different cultures and communities have different sort of family dynamics. One of the things that seems to be really a big issue here in Italy are these multi-generational living arrangements where the grandkids live with the grandparents and the parents mm. and transmission of something like this that may... I'm not a doctor, but it seems like it's really concentrated on the older people and it's being brought home to them by the kids and the grandkids. Yeah, yeah. That is crazy. So, Josh, you, how did you decide to move to Italy? After this, yeah. your business, you were looking for, uh, for what? You already had those plans? or No, I never had those plans. When I sold the business, I sold it to a private equity firm. And I maintained significant ownership and I stayed on as the CEO. I was very fortunate that it was a pretty lucrative transaction and I had a fair amount of financial flexibility and freedom. And it was one day my wife and I were just talking about what we wanted to do with the rest of our life and with our children and our family. And material things were not particularly important to either of us. We didn't need a 
a boat or a big car, a special car, something like that. And we said, boy, wouldn't it be cool to have an experience? And uh, we started to think about the idea of all learning a new language, living in a new culture. My wife particularly wanted weather better than New York, where we were coming <laughs> from. And we did a little bit of a sort of analysis of what the options and opportunities were and settled on Florence, Italy. I told my investors of my decision. I gave them a year's notice. So I stayed on as CEO working with those in part, uh, partners and investors for a bit more than a year. And then we just kind of took a swing at it. And it's been nearly four years now, and we have really no plans to go back. We've been very, very pleased with the decision. Very, very nice. It's the hardest thing, I guess, when, when it comes to moving to, to doing any kind of experience as a father of three, only one of mine is going to school. And I'm right, not right now because, you know, because of the situation with the virus and stuff. But the, the hardest thing is going anywhere with a kid that is six that has everything she knows in one location, all her friends, her school. Uh, were your kids younger or past that situation? How did that go? Yeah, at that point, my young, my my oldest was then entering sixth grade. So it was sort of like the perfect place in time. And my youngest was entering kindergarten when we arrived in Italy. So we sort of got them right before they got too attached. We got them out there to see to the community we were in. They, you know, they were sad at first. And I think most difficult was um, just sort of moving away from the things they knew to a new environment. But it wasn't more than three or four months before the older one was like, we're never going back, right? I love it here. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was very comforting because my wife and I had, you know, pretty much expected that would be the way it would be anyway. But uh, it was really uh, a nice confirmation. Nice. So your, your business in the coffee industry, you grew the earnings a multiple of 275 times. So that is normally something that is achievable or some, somewhat easy to do on a startup, because when you start up, there is no earnings. On a thing business, it's not that easy. How did you go about doing that? Well, it's, it was really interesting. So the business that I led and built and developed was called Ernex Brands. And Ernex was a specialty manufacturer, it still is, a specialty manufacturer of cleaning products for coffee machines, detergents, chemicals that are really specialized on cleaning and descaling household and primarily commercial coffee machines. When I got involved with the business, there were seven distinct product lines. And I actually made the decision to close more than half of the revenue, generating six of the product lines and focus only on my opportunities in the coffee industry. Wow. So the ability, so I took something that was very small and my team and I took something, I should say, uh, was profitable, but was quite small. And um, decided the first thing we really did, aside from developing and defining our products and our brands, we went out and acquired um, what was then a much larger competitor. And we merged it together with this very focused determination to only do one thing really well. So we decided we were going to be the best at making cleaning products for coffee machines. And with that, it allowed us to really achieve a great scale. So without wasting too much time or effort focusing on many different product lines. We dedicated all of our efforts to growing sales in a way that increased profitability. Um, and so as sales grew, our sales grew 15% a year for 15 straight years. But in the process, um, earnings grew dramatically more because each time we added more top line sales, things became more profitable. Yeah, let's touch on something that you mentioned there. You were focusing on just one thing. And that's something that I, uh, I appreciate. And there's actually a really good book about it called The One Thing. Okay. Uh, 
Uh, tell me, how would you how would you decide what is the one thing to focus on, and how exactly would you do that? Yeah. So chapter one of my book is about your one thing and finding yeah. and identifying your one thing. And uh, my my belief is that you have to really assess what you have in the business to begin with. You have to understand the financial metrics, the pluses, the minuses, the profitability. But for me, the most important thing was it being ownable is a word I like to use where it's mine. I can control it. I have some power over it. I also think it's very important that your one thing be a brand, be something that you can build passion about both for your internal team as well as for your customers. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's something that you like and it should be important to you that you can get passionate about. Some of the other product lines that I closed were not things that I had any interest in, not things that had any ability to apply a brand or brand marketing to. And uh, for that reason, they, and they weren't stuff that I felt good about talking about with my friends over a cocktail party. I wanted to create, I mean, I'll be honest, cleaning products for coffee machines is not that sexy, but <laughs> everybody always wants to hear about that at the cocktail party or at the dinner party because it's something you can connect to and you can have conversations about. And that made it very important as my one thing. Very good. That's actually a, a great point. You know that the product, the, I guess, I don't know if it's a word, but we call them the unsexy products. When, when sourcing for a new product to, to sell in, in, my, in my type of business, we look for the unsexy products that not everybody's talking about because those are the ones that normally have a lower competition. And it's yep. easy to, to, to... I think the unsexy products give you a chance to kind of figure things out, to assess the market, to get a sense of what's there before there's too many people fighting you for the space. You can kind of get a little bit of a head start if you, you know, decide to like, I guess, be humble a little bit more humble about what you're doing. You know, I had to tell people I made soap for cleaning coffee machines when other people were lawyers or bankers or doctors and you kind of live with that. <laughs> Absolutely. What matters at the end of the day is that you enjoy what you're doing and you can make some profit from it enough to keep the family happy and healthy and live your dreams, right? So that's what's important. You, you took the word. I mean, one of the big things that I talk about all the time is my, I built my company with the vision of creating uh, my dream job. I had this vision that I wanted to build an organization that existed and operated with or without my presence in a way that I had the freedom and flexibility to work with people that I enjoyed working with and be profitable at a level that made me happy, but also gave me some flexibility and freedom to pursue hobbies and other interests that I wanted to have time for. Um, and that was my dream job. And that paid dividends over and over throughout the years, even up till the point of sale, uh, where it really gave me some power. Yeah, yeah, very nice. That some people, uh, some people set out sometimes with a, a dream or a goal like that, and then forget where they were going. Uh, because I mean, for example, I know I launched my business, and the priority or the dream was to be able to spend more time with the family, and that's what we're looking for: is the, the freedom, right? Of course, a bit of financial freedom, but more freedom from the nine to five or working for somebody else. A hundred percent. Having the discipline to know where you're going is so important. Because <clears throat> yeah, a lot of the times we forget about it. And then you start chasing like, okay, this is actually a very profitable business, very profitable idea. And you start chasing that profit and forget that, oh, I've been working 16 hours a day, every single day, although I own the business. And I didn't spend the time with the family and that's what I wanted. So yeah. people forget, and I was one of them too. I think um, 
You're absolutely right. I think it's very important to remember and balance. I think one of the things that was always very important to me, as you're saying this reminds me, still on the wall in front of me in my office here, I have a 12-month calendar um, that's a visual old school thing. And running a business, I had one for myself and one for my key sales leaders and people that traveled. And I always like to see everyone's travel schedule visually over a 12-month period. And I always like to make sure that there were nice gaps because I would worry about my, my team losing energy, losing commitment if things got too rammed together. And my way of looking at it was not actually electronic, but just kind of looking at it almost like up in a helicopter to say, you know, one of our heads of sales was a guy named Don. I'd be like, Don, I just looking at your calendar and you've got back-to-back trips. That's not good. You got to be home with your wife and kids. And it sort of kept the whole organization and team happier and more productive, I think. Yeah, I like that idea because I have, of course, I have the digital calendars, the Google calendars and the Microsoft calendars. But I also have on the wall the one where I go and write it myself too. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a, a bit of old school, but I, I guess it, I don't know, it makes things more, I feel like I'm closer to things or more into things when I write them myself than just looking at somebody else's calendar. Absolutely. I also have a big belief in um, looking up at things as opposed to looking down at a piece of paper. I always felt that running an organization, if you could share communal bits of information at eye level on a wall where multiple people could look at it from a slight distance together, it was more productive than when every person had a piece of paper in their hands in front of them. They They might all be looking at the same printout. But I found the things that really united us were stuff that we put on the walls. So I had a big culture of sort of agendas and posters and reminders just being slapped on the wall as a way we could all look up at things as opposed to down. Yeah, that's a great point. I, as you were saying that, I could picture something up on the wall close to the printer where if you had go to, you have to print 20 sheets or something. So it's going to spend a, at least a minute there while you're waiting, you read everything around you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, little reminders about, you know, what to watch out for, what to think about, how to prepare yourself. were always very, very valuable. So Josh, tell me something about the book, Grow Like a Lobster. Uh, why, why a title like that? Yeah. So um, early on in my business career, I read a book, called um, The Secret Life of Lobsters by a guy named Trevor Corson. And I heard it was the life cycle of lobsters. And I read this description about what a lobster has to do to grow. And in order to grow, a lobster has to actually rip its soft, fleshy body out from inside of its hard shell. And in the process, sometimes they die doing it, trying to get their claw out from inside the knuckles and things like that. And I'm reading this book and I, I just have this image of myself I felt so vulnerable and weak and you know susceptible to attacks from everyone. And I said to myself, oh my God, I'm molting. In fact, all businesses molt. And early on in my career, I started talking about remembering the molt with my team. Anytime things were good, I would say to the team, hey guys, our shells are hard, but let's remember that the molt's coming. And I started to use that as sort of the metaphor that brought us together to plan and prepare to remind ourselves that we should never rest on our laurels and be overconfident. We should make investments throughout the way. And when I went back and started to put the book together, Grow Like a Lobster just occurred to me as this like perfect title and way to kind of make a business story guidebook come to life. The funniest part about it is when I started researching lobsters and their life cycle, I also learned 
that every time a lobster grows, it grows 15%. And as I mentioned earlier, that's how much we grew every year. And it was just this weird connection. So each chapter has a little bit of a a story about a lobster that ties it back to ideas and lessons about how to build your business to plan and prepare for extraordinary results. So it just became my way of bringing what are otherwise business topics a little bit more life and humor and uh, energy. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it as you were explaining it. And uh, I remember it also, Tony Robbins says that if you're not growing, you're dying. And again, that lobster is growing the 15% every time. And if it doesn't exit that shell, growth will stop. And I'm guessing that lobster will stop growing and will die. Yeah. And it's pretty interesting. Lobsters grow throughout life. They can live over a hundred years if they're not caught and you're not enjoying them on your dinner table. But um, it's one of those really amazing things. They have this constant rate of growth at the same rate. And who wouldn't want your business to grow in perpetuity at the same rate? The other thing that I got from the lobster is that they're growing very consistently with almost control. And for me, that was also a personal tenet of the business that when we grew, I never wanted to grow too fast. I never would accept growing too slow, but our goals were always 15 to 20% every year, even though there might have been opportunities that we thought about pursuing that would have accelerated growth much faster. I believe if you come back to that dream job and you want to have the ability to balance your life and your work personally and professionally, it's okay to say no. I don't think you have to hit it out of the park to use the baseball metaphor in one year alone. I like the idea of consistent, controlled growth that goes on over an extended period of time. That, that reminds me of a post I read that was written by you about the 1% idea, growing the 1%. And that's something that is really fascinating because a lot of people don't want to focus on a 1% growth. They want the everything at once. But I mean, looking sometimes for 1% here, 1% here, if you grow 1% of something every day, I mean, you in half a year, you double whatever you, you had. And sometimes 1% is the low-hanging fruit. I agree completely. You know, I used to look at it this way. If, we, if our goal was to grow 15% a year, and you had four or five ideas that were each worth 1% of the previous year's sales, all right, you're at, call it 5%. Then maybe you have a 2 to 4% price increase. Ah, let's add another three. Now I'm at eight. If I'm only trying to get to 15 what do I have to do? I have to grow my existing business pretty modestly. And then all of a sudden you turn around growing 15% a year. Who's going to complain? <laughs> Absolutely. Josh, when um, going back to the, the business a little bit, you, were, you, were, you had sales in over 70 countries. How was this when it comes to logistics and all that? Were you involved in that part? Dramatically, uh, yeah. yeah. So we started just based in New York. And because we were doing this product line that was specialized for coffee, we quickly realized that it was really the same demand for the product in the coffee industry everywhere in the world. So we had this very consistent story message product portfolio that we could sell in New York or in um, Nevada or in uh, um, you know anywhere in the world, in Korea, in Japan. So as we started to expand, I took a shot at sort of trying to reach out to the international market. And very quickly found that there was great demand for the products we were making and the message we were telling. And logistically, 
we struggled. At first, we had a great sales rep from FedEx who gave us incredible discounts um, on international export shipments. And we would ship these boxes of cleaning products. First, it would be one or two to a country. And then there were times it was like 40 or 50 boxes to stay within the uh, weight and volume limit where our pricing discounts. And we realized this was crazy. And ultimately, what we ended up doing was establishing uh, distribution centers in Europe and Asia. So then we were able to actually pre-position product in those markets. It was all manufactured at that time still in the New York market. And we would ship to our distribution centers in Holland and Hong Kong. And all of a sudden, we were in a position to satisfy demand for product, small or large, within short periods of time in local markets. So the logistics was really a big deal. And we had to really convince those logistic partners that supported us um, in those markets. They were big third-party warehouses that we used to... um, give us a shot because our initial volumes that we brought to them were very small and they were skeptical that we're, they're like, huh, you want us to stock, you know, coffee machine cleaning products. And, um, it took a little time, but once they took a shot on us and we made some commitments to how much volume would do it immediately, one thing led to the next and we were able to really expand. And as, as you said correctly, we went from just selling the New York market effectively to selling all over the world and, uh, being known as a brand all over the world. And is that something when you started going internationally and you had to get those third-party warehouses, did that start it to consume the cash flow because now you have to pay for the product that's sitting at a warehouse? It did, but uh, fortunately in the world of chemicals, the margins were quite significant and the cost of transport out of the U.S. into international markets was not dramatic. It was investment I was worth making. The other benefit that we had going in our type of product line and portfolio is that as we started, we didn't really give much credit. So most of our customers were paying um, on receipt or on, on order, basically. So the cash flow problem really did not come up, fortunately. And that was one of the beautiful parts of the business that allowed us that consistent control growth, I said. I think that if we had grown too fast, the cash flow problems might have arisen um, in the model. But because we were sort of moderating things, we were able to kind of keep ahead of it. And it worked very well. Gotcha. So how about today? What are you doing right now? What are your goals? Yeah, so it's, it's pretty cool. So since having the opportunity to move to Italy, I set a number of different goals. One was to um, learn the Italian language, which I'm very proud to have a- accomplished. I would say it's always a never-ending journey to really perfect. And my accent uh, will never get there. I just don't have the ear for it, but I can communicate. When I've made people laugh in Italian, I felt so good about it. Um, but um, then um, I also wanted to stay connected to the coffee industry. So along with other partners, I've set up a, a private investment firm where we do we make investments in businesses in the coffee industry. Sort of more start, not quite startup, more they're established businesses, but they're small. And I'm working in an advisory role um, with some of those businesses that we've in, invested in. But I also do like to work and mentor um, entrepreneurs and business leaders where, where I can. So I do a little bit of that advisory work on a select basis if I find it interesting, if I have a connection. And then the book. The book was really my big thing that I set out to do. I, I sat down and started writing because I realized that I had been very fortunate to have learned a great number of things in my business career. And I thought it was really something that I could give back. I read so many business books in my career getting going and from each one I would pull one little tidbit or idea or inspiration and I just hope that Grow Like a Lobster could become this book that a few people will read and take some idea, have something confirmed 
for me, sometimes reading a book, I would be like, oh my God, I'm not an idiot. They, somebody else said that that was an okay decision that I made. And, and those little things, those little ideas were all I hope to deliver in the book. So that goal is to continue to spread the message and maybe get the book out there in a way that it helps people build great businesses of their own. Josh, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you and everybody else listening know a, a secret, something that one of my dreams was always uh, related to some of the things that I enjoy, uh, eat or drink, and where you are right now would be uh, the ideal combination of those things, and it's coffee, red wine, olive oil, and bread. Those are, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Italy is great for all of them, and. Uh, I mean, that's one of the things that I always thought of. I have to make something up, invent something that has a combination of those. And I have to. <laughs> but maybe, maybe that's something that... Uh, you, you got it right. You got it right. I mean, it's, I feel very fortunate. I'm very uh, enjoying Italy despite the situations we're in now. And I think I'm probably most proud of, of seeing how my children are shaping and developing as globally aware citizens of the world, interacting with all different cultures. And that, that part is sort of one of my goals too, to help them realize those things and have those experiences. You notice how much easier it is for them to learn a different language and get rid of that accent? It's fantastic. It's so beautiful. I helped one of my, uh, my, my nine-year-old with her Italian homework this morning and you know, she read the instructions to me and I was just like, oh, you make me sick. You know, you sound so beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, you know, as uh, as we mentioned uh, um, uh, off the air, I lived in Europe for 25 years. And when I came back to Canada, my sister ended up coming over with uh, my nephew, who had never spoke English in his life. And it was, I mean, it was almost painful to see that he couldn't understand any other kid. He couldn't speak anything. And in no time, he went from not being able to speak to come over to me. And that's when I realized how quick they will learn is when he came over and he said, uh, started a sentence in Portuguese asking me how to say lizard. And I said, well, lizard is an English word, right? <laughs> it's English. He couldn't remember how to say lizard in Portuguese. But so he was actually uh, forgetting the Portuguese because he was learning English so quick. And of course he's fluent in no time. It's incredible. It's 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 amazing. One of my kids also like doesn't know the word for a plum. She asked for a susina, you know, and like you know, I'm like, uh, it's a plum. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what happens. So, Josh, I have I have some links here that I'll put on the show notes. But uh, why don't you let people know if they want to find out more about you and about the services that you offer, uh, where they can find you. Absolutely, absolutely. So I have a personal website at joshua-dick or joshua-dick.com. And there you can subscribe to a blog that I write with short two, three-minute reads. Um, there's also a contact form to get in touch with me. And within that is a sort of sub webpage called growlikealobster.com, which is a website where you can find out more about the book and find the link to get the book on Amazon pretty much in any country where you might be. And uh, yeah, those are the easiest ways. So joshua-dick.com. The dash kind of bothers me sometimes, but somebody had owned my name without it. I had to do something. So. <laughs> yes. And just, just so you know, that grow like a lobster section is missing Canada in there. <laughs> oh, on the Amazon, a dropdown is missing Amazon.ca. Yes. 
should be in there. Oh, okay, I'll make sure we um, add it. That should be easy yeah. to do. But it is, Amazon amazes me from an e-commerce perspective with books and how they can make them available. So, Yes, they are available everywhere. And I checked and I have show, link, uh, show links. The show notes, I'll have the links there so uh, for you guys to check them out. Everybody that's listening, and it's a fantastic book, Grow Like a Lobster. Joshua is also a fantastic person. So, Josh, thank you so much for being here. It was a big pleasure. Quinn, absolutely. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Have a great one. We'll have to do this again one day. Anytime.